Thank you, choir. Thank you, musicians, for leading us in worship today. Mm. I invite you to open your Bible with me to uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, the first letter. I'm going to speak on the subject of sound doctrine. We'll finish what we started last Sunday morning here in this text. This is Paul's first letter to Timothy, known as one of Paul's pastoral epistles. Uh, he being an older, seasoned missionary, pastor, evangelist, was intentional about mentoring younger men in ministry, and his practice was to win these guys to faith in Christ and then to train them and raise them up as future leaders. I uh, came across uh, a section one of the books that I was reading and enlisted some of the young men's names that it was believed that Paul led to faith and disciple. Let me read some of these to you. Uh, I, I uh, wasn't as familiar with this. Dionysius, Damaris, Gaius, Sopater, Tychicus, Trophimus, Stephanus, Clemus, Epaphras, and it said, and then there's a phrase in one of the books, letters of Corinthians, and others. And so just think about all these young men he led to faith in Christ and mentored. Two of his closest were, uh, these young pastors were Timothy and Titus. Timothy had become the pastor in the church at Ephesus. Titus uh, was appointed to pastor the church on the island of Crete. And the text that we're going to look at this morning, again, Paul writing to Timothy, these verses 3 through 11 really lay the basis, the foundation for everything else that you see in this letter. And so let me review very quickly with you, just kind of briefly from last week and catch us up. Paul and Timothy had been serving together in ministry for 15 years. They partnered in the work of spreading the gospel, traveling from city to city, preaching and teaching and planning churches making disciples, baptizing people. And then in each one of those churches, they had to train and raise up leaders. Paul and Timothy were actually the men who planted the church at Ephesus. And we know that after they planted the church, they come back to the church and they stay there for three consecutive years, discipling, mentoring, teaching, training, building the church up, and then they eventually leave. And I went into all of the background, what happened last Sunday. I'm not going to do that. But we know that after they leave the church, they are gone for four to five years. And during their absence, while they're not there, some men desiring to be leaders in the church, uh, teachers or perhaps elders, had wormed their way into positions of church leadership. The text that we read said they actually desired to be teachers. And that word desired means that they longed, they longed to be in those positions. They wanted the attention. They wanted the recognition. Perhaps they wanted some control. And so these teachers had worked, somehow manipulated, gotten themselves into this, these positions of teaching and leadership because they had an agenda, and their agenda was to get what they wanted. Precisely something that Paul was pre previously concerned about. Perhaps from already knowing who these men were in the church, he actually suspected this and predicted it would, be, it would happen. And 
You remember we looked in Acts chapter 20 when Paul was, uh, after he left and he was making his way down to Jerusalem before he got there, he, he ported, uh, got off a ship, stayed some time in Miletus and sent for the elders, and he actually warned the existing elders of the church that this was going to happen, to be warned ahead of time. And certainly after they were gone, it, it occurred, just as Paul was concerned would happen, it, it did happen. And so when this occurs, again, being gone for four or five years, when Paul is released from a house arrest in Rome, him and Timothy go back to Ephesus, and upon their return, they discover that their previous concerns were well-founded. The Ephesians church was now being led by some men who were, we know from the text, spiritually deficient. If you'll notice in verse 7 of chapter 1, it adds they desire to be teachers, these leaders, these overseers. And he goes on to say the problem was that neither of these teachers understood what they were saying nor the things that they were affirming. And uh, particularly intrigued with that verse 7 We'll read this in just a moment, but they neither understood the things they were teaching, things they were saying, nor did they understand the things they were affirming. And so you think about that. Paul is saying they're not clear on what they're teaching, not clear on what they're saying. They're not using the scripture, the law rightfully. And then second, they're not clear on what they're affirming. What they're saying, what they're affirming. In other words, they're not perhaps going along with some things they shouldn't be going along with. They're affirming some things that they shouldn't be affirming. They're going along, staying silent about some things they shouldn't be staying silent about. And so being true to the gospel, sound in doctrine, loving the Lord and loving his people demands that we're careful what we teach and we also don't go along with every idea and every practice, every suggestion that somebody might have in the church. We don't need to affirm everything that somebody might propose or somebody might want to do in the church. And so it's not just what they're teaching, it's what they're going along with, what they're affirming. So the Apostle Paul rolls up his sleeves when him and Timothy arrive back and they find these teachers in place. And in verse Chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we know that they remove a couple of the ringleaders, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They set them outside the church. They remove them. And then after some time, maybe, maybe days or even a few weeks, Paul, the Bible says, leaves for Macedonia, and he charges Timothy to stay there for him to roll up his sleeves and to continue to work in the church. And so the first order of pastoral business for Timothy as he steps into this church leadership role as their new pastor is to address doctrine. What is being taught and who are those who are doing the teaching? And so that's how this begins. Paul is providing Timothy with a strategy. Pay close attention to doctrine. Charge some, he says in verse 3, regarding their teaching. And so let's read this together, starting at verse 3, 1 Timothy chapter 1. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, and he's writing, this is Paul, again, writing to Timothy, 
Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. I invite you to pray. Father, we're here to worship you and to honor you, to hear you, to, to listen for your voice and to respond in faith and obedience because, Father, we have a desire to please you. And so please speak to us and use this sacred time that we have together for your glory and your purposes in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the Apostle Paul is the sender of this letter. Timothy is the recipient. He's the new young pastor of the church at Ephesus. This is his very first church to pastor, the first time that he's been in a kind of role or position like this. I've always believed and thought it would be a good idea if young Bible college graduates and seminary graduates, upon their completion of their studies, I've always thought it would do them well to find pastoral internships where they had the opportunity to work under an older, competent, more seasoned pastor, gaining some experience before they had to step into a lead role by themselves. Timothy had that blessing of learning at the Apostle Paul's side, time to mature and to season and to develop his, his faith in God. Most pastors, before they assume uh, any leadership of a particular church, well, they'll try and find out all that they can find out about that church. Uh, um, and the church will try to find out everything they can about that potential pastor. In Timothy's case, he already had the luxury of knowing much about this church. He was with Paul when the church was planted. He already knew many of the members of the church knew about the city, knew about the context in which people lived and worked. He knew about the congregation's leaders. He knew of those who want to be leaders, these church wannabes. He also knew that those wannabes were not spiritually qualified to be in those roles. 
And as we'll see in this text, they were not sound in doctrine. So the first order of importance for Timothy is for the church to be healthy. He is to address this matter of doctrine, that which we've been singing about this morning, which meant two things. Timothy needed to know who are the persons who are teaching the word and what do you know about their lives. And as we'll look in a few weeks as we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the character qualities for all of us being used of God is, and certainly would, should be applied to teachers, were these teachers in the church blameless? Were they above reproach? Did they have a good testimony, a good standing with other people? And then second, what are they teaching? Are they sound in doctrine? Are they theologically grounded as they minister the word? And so when Timothy steps into this pastoral role, he has the luxury of already being provided with a strategy for leadership. Paul, after many years of pastoral experience combined with a good understanding of this church's history and is in a good position to provide Timothy with some advice and so his counsel, Timothy, address doctrine. Don't begin with the buildings and the facilities. Don't get out of focus on the church budget. Don't begin with the church's organization and structure and constitution and bylaws. Don't begin with various areas of ministry. All of those things are important and need attention. But Timothy, the first order of business is who are teaching in the church and what is it that they are teaching? Somebody in this church besides myself needs to know who, is, who are the teachers at Hillcrest and everything that's being taught in this church needs to be monitored by somebody. Every class from preschool, middle school, High school and adults, we need to know what's being taught in the church. And so that's Paul's counsel to Timothy. And he also not only begins with that initial strategy, he also begins with some encouragement. Look at verse 3. Timothy, I urge you to remain. I urge you to remain. Don't give up. Keep the sacred trust. He, these are phrases that he uses throughout the letter. Keep the sacred trust. Guard what's been entrusted to you. So he's saying, don't throw in the towel. Don't get discouraged. And we looked at this last week. You, you certainly can imagine as, as young Timothy comes into this church, he and Paul, and Paul begins to remove people from leadership positions. I'm sure it created a stir, don't you think? Don't you think there was probably some opposition, some pushback, some criticism, some resistance? And Paul is encouraging Timothy, stay with this. This is not going to be an easy thing to do. How many of you have ever worked or served somewhere where your boss or your supervisor in the workplace was, uh, I was trying to think of the right kind of word, but uh, was just kind of a jerk? Anybody ever been in that situation that the person that you answered to had a short fuse? They had a critical nature. They very seldom ever passed out any compliments. They never affirmed anything. They never really expressed appreciation. But on the other hand, they were quick to criticize, to point out faults, to tell you everything you were doing wrong, all that you weren't doing right. 
everything that you needed to start doing that you weren't doing. And when they did provide that kind of input, it usually wasn't very tactful or careful or caring. And you just always felt like they were tearing you down. Well, all of us need to be accountable and all could benefit from some criticism, especially when it's constructive criticism and, and when it's measured out in a caring and encouraging way. That's kind of what Paul is trying to do with Timothy. He's trying to encourage him. I had a guy tell me several years ago, the only people who are never criticized are those who don't do anything. And it's always stayed with me. And so criticism is a reality for people who lead, and it's certainly a reality for people who are called and are willing to step up and provide leadership in the church. Paul is definitely a direct person. He's up front when he says things, but he's also a guy who cares for other people, and, and he knows how to encourage. You remember when Paul, when he was first saved, it's, it's, the Bible says none of the Jews would have anything to do with him except one person. You remember who that was? Barnabas, known as an encourager, he was the one to reach out to Paul, to bring him in and to help kind of mentor him and bring him along. So Paul is providing Timothy with a strategy for successful leadership, and the first order is address the ministry of the word. Make sure the teaching ministry is the way it needs to be. And he encourages him, don't quit. You're needed. Stay with this. Keep the sacred trust that God has Entrusted to you. So stay with it. And the reality of these false teachers and dealing them are going to be difficult. But he's saying, you can do this. You remember later when he says, God has not given you a spirit of fear or timidity, but one of a sound mind and love and discipline. And so Paul's saying, Timothy, I care about you. I believe in you. I want to urge you to stay with it. Stay with it. Don't throw in the towel. And so there's a strategy, there's encouragement, and then just kind of just very quickly, in verses 3 and 4, the strategy, you remember, was to keep the church solid, sound in doctrine. Because he says, the doctrine is what will build up faith and produce love and produce purity of conscience and uh, uh, just those things there listed in verses 3 and 4. So what is sound doctrine? So when Paul says, Timothy, uh, pay attention to sound doctrine. Charge certain men that they don't do any, teach anything but sound doctrine. Well, what is sound doctrine? Well, the sound doctrine is the doctrine that Jesus established with his 12 disciples who become the apostles. Sound doctrine is the basic tenets of the gospel. Sound doctrine would include the principles that Jesus taught regarding the kingdom of God. And it's certainly the foundation of all of the apostles' teaching and preaching through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, do you remember after Thousands of people were saved, it says, and they describes the life of the church, and it said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the apostles' doctrine. In other words, Timothy, you personally devote yourself to apostolic doctrine and make sure that everyone else is as well. Jude, the servant of Christ, I, I was thinking about this text, in Jude chapter, or Chapter 1, starting verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to fight or to contend earnestly for the faith, 
for the faith that would be sound doctrine for apostolic teaching, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. So Timothy is to address sound doctrine, which was not what was happening in the church. The Bible says these teachers were adding to it. In verse 4, it mentions fables and endless genealogies, most likely a reference to persons or to characters in the Old Testament. Taking liberty with the Old Testament, perhaps there were some Jewish teachers misapplying Old Testament teachings. We, we know in 1 Timothy 4.3, they were adding things about ceremonial laws and dietary regulations. Verse 7 mentions idle talk and ramblings that were going on in teaching settings. And he says the result is that people are straying. They're swerving. They're wandering away from the faith. And he says the outcomes of that are speculation. Speculation where nothing is really black and white. Nothing is really certain. Uncertainty, confusion. He says disputes and divisions. Verse 4, rather than godly edification. And so if you summarize all of that, it means this. When the Bible is not being taught rightly divided and applied, people in our churches, their lives will remain unchanged. Unchanged, unmoved by the Holy Spirit, not helped. Not likely will they hear God's voice if there is not solid biblical teaching occurring in, in the life of the church. Sometimes even hurt as a result of legalism, when teachers add to things and bring about non-biblical rules, others becoming prideful or self-righteous. Perhaps some of that was going on in the church at Ephesus, where people became prideful if they had certain rules and things, and some people kept them and some didn't, and so this pride began to develop. False teaching, poor teaching, or weak teaching does not edify and build people up in the faith, nor does it protect the church, strengthen the church, it doesn't provide guidance, and certainly doesn't contribute to unity. And so, what I'll say to all of us, there is a standard that we as a church adhere to. It's sound doctrine. It's never changed. We don't, you and I don't believe in apostolic succession, but we do believe in apostolic teaching. Sound doctrine, a standard for all teaching that should never change in the life of the church. And so you and I need to be clear on doctrine. Hold to it, guard it, fight for it, pass it on. And I want to say to you, it will be a fight. It will be a fight to stay with the scriptures, to adhere to the scriptures, to pass it on to our kids and our grandkids there, there's a battle involved in this. We need to maintain what is true and reject what is false. And I want you to think with me on this issue. Today, everything that people believe, in fact, in many churches, is being synthesized. There is a, talk to a brother here, pastor's church, not far from here, Don and I was with him this week. Their whole denomination is getting ready to split. Because doctrine is being watered down. Doctrine is being added to. It's being synthesized. Pluralism is in vogue. 
It's politically correct. There are elite cultural voices today that espouse that every religion is to be affirmed. Every religious view, every religious teaching is valid. No one should seek to, conf- to convert anyone else because that's arrogant to think that your view is right and everyone else's is wrong. No one should purport to think nor to say that I'm right, my message is valid, and your message is wrong. No one should try to persuade anyone else to believe like them. Does that sound familiar? That's that's what's happening in schools, certainly what's happening in college campuses and universities. It's happening more and more in our culture today. Postmodernism says there is no objective truth. There is no absolute, universal, eternal truth. Instead, what? Each person has their own truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, and they may be vastly different. They may be even totally contradictory, but no one is supposed to pass judgment on anyone else's truth. And the most prized value of all is tolerance. We're just, uh, tolerance is valued. Everyone is, and everything is to be tolerated except for intolerance. With no one being free to speak up nor determine what is true and what's false. Because that's intolerant. And so what is the biblical doctrinal response to this? What's going to be our response to this as a church? What is going to be your response when you're sitting in a classroom teaching and someone else in the classroom begins to espouse other ideas or alternative interpretations that are contrary to Scripture? Well, our response is to be based upon Scripture, based upon the truth, but it's also to be presented always in love. The fact is, there is no follower of the Lord Jesus Christ that can adhere to this type of relative subjectivism. If we think, really think the issue through logically, and if we actually know what Jesus taught, you can't, you can't accept those kinds of propositions. Jesus said, I am the truth. I came to bear witness to the truth. My Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit will guide you into truth, and the truth will set you free. And so according to Jesus, there is absolute truth. Absolute truth is truth that is right for all people in all cultures and contexts at all times. And God has revealed that truth to us through his written word, his revelation. And it began with the Ten Commandments and the giving of the law. That law helps us to understand how to relate to God and how to relate to one another. And then God has revealed truth to us through the living word, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus and his disciples warned continuously, beware of false teachers and false teaching who will guide you astray and lead you away from truth. 
And so just as Timothy was to remain and stand against the tide of false ideas and teachings, Hillcrest, so are we. We're to stand on the word, standing on the promises. I mentioned last Sunday morning, the first cousin to false teaching is weak teaching. Because weak teaching paves the way for false teaching to be embraced. The teachings of Jesus and the apostles remain the standards for judging all other teaching, all other worldviews, all other ideas, and religious propositions are to be tested from the scriptures. Paul, or John actually writes that in, in, the, uh, in 1 John, which makes it imperative that we teach the Bible as the inspired word of God and that we remain clear on the gospel. The gospel helps us to know how to come into a right relationship with God and also clear on standards regarding how to live for God. And so we're to teach it, stay clear on it, and to teach it with urgency. And then on a positive note, the Apostle Paul writes Timothy, when there is sound doctrine going on in the church, you can expect godly edification in the faith. In other words, people will be built up in their faith and their relationship with God. And he says the Holy Spirit will produce love and purity and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now look with me at verses 8 through 11 because Paul makes some comments about the law. So let me go through this and then I want to provide some things for you to consider for application. So just a couple of thoughts on verses 8 through 11 regarding the law. Paul says three things about the law in verses 8 through 11. First he says in verse 8, the law is good if it's understood and taught or used lawfully. In other words, in the right way. Verse 9, he says, the law is given or made for who? He says, for the lawless, for the insubordinate, for the ungodly. And so one of the purposes of God's law, which includes all of his word, is that it points out and, first of all, makes us aware of sin. That's one of the things the law of God does. It makes us, it points out, makes us aware of sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 7 said, I would have not known that this was sin apart from the law. And so the law is what helps us to know that's right, that's wrong, that's sinful. The law is what establishes boundaries for us. For example, if you go out here and get on 2278, and I'm not sure what the speed limit is out there, but let's say it's 55, and there are signs posted, 55 mile per hour speed limit, those signs reveal to us, make us aware of what the maximum speed limit is. That's the boundary, zero to 55. Probably be better to stay a little further up than zero. And anything over 55 is what? It's against the law. It's not good. And if you exceed 50 mile, five miles per hour, you're breaking the law. You're a lawbreaker. So God has, by the way, it's probably going to be indict every one of us in this place today. God has given us his word, his law for us to understand what is sin. And if we disregard or exceed, we're breaking the law. That's sin. Consider uh, the Ten Commandments. One of those Ten Commandments is we're not to lie or to bear false witness. And if we do, it's what? It's sin. And so the law, the word, helps us to know what sin is. 
So it's a good thing, right, if teachers, when they're teaching, ministering the word, if they're very clear on this is sin, this is breaking God's law, these are the boundaries for knowing God and for living in a right relationship with God. And if teachers then add to that law or water it down or take things away from the law, then they would be classified as false teachers. And so the law, God's moral laws are still in effect today. God's moral law never changes, never changes. Ceremonial laws regarding dietary restrictions and animal blood and sacrifice, those laws are no longer in effect. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled. He satisfied all of the ceremonial laws. In other words, every day is holy for you and I as a Christian, not just the Sabbath. Every food item that we receive is okay as long as it's received with thanksgiving. You and I no longer need to offer bulls and goats and lambs as sacrifices because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that's made it possible for all sin to be taken away once and for all. And so good teaching in our classrooms in all ages is always clear on God's law and what is classified as sin. Second, God through his word and his law not only makes us aware of sin, but through his word and through the Holy Spirit, he convicts us of our own sinfulness, that we are sinners. That not only do we know what the law is, we also then come to the right realization we've all broken the law, we've all sinned. If, if you were to put out a, go in this hallway and you were to take a piece of furniture and you painted it, and the paint was wet, and you put on there with a little piece of a tape, do not touch what wet paint. What do you think everyone's inclination is going to be to do when they pass by that wet paint? I've done it, I've done it so many times. What are we all inclined to do? By our very nature, we all want to do what? We want to touch it. That's the same thing you see in the book of Genesis. Do not take from this tree... And the desire was to, to test it, to touch it. Why? Why are we that way? Because by our very nature, we're sinful. Uh, those of you who have parent, parents and grandparents, you bring home a little child, it, it doesn't take very long to recognize that that little child has a sinful nature. They don't have to learn how to sin. It's within them. They're born with that nature. Let me go further. Any of you ever attempt not to sin? Certain sin that you have maybe a propensity for? And any of you ever, like Paul describes in Romans 7, think, I'm not going to do that anymore. I've sinned, I've said this, I've done whatever it might be, and you think, I'll never do that again. I, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to do that again. How did that go for you? You see, the law makes us aware of sin, and it also the law convicts us that we are sinful and that we're sinners. And the third thing the law does for us is it drives us to despair, which some would say that in our culture, in our in society, we say, well, that's a bad thing about you Christians. Uh, your teaching, the God, it produces guilt and shame and despair. And you and I as a Christian say, thank God for shame 
and guilt because, you see, the law, God's being clear on what is sin and then us being convicted of sin is what drives us to despair. Calvin said, the law of God that drives us to despair is like a hammer that shatters us, which in our desperation causes us to realize our need for Christ. Remember Romans 7, Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am. What a lawbreaker I am. Who can deliver me from my sin? Oh, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is therefore now no more condemnation. You see, his sin and his guilt and his shame is what drove him to the gospel, which Paul says in verse 11, God has entrusted to you and I a glorious gospel. The gospel fulfills the law. The gospel is what God has given to us, the message to move us into a right relationship with him. And so my question is, what are we doing with it? How are we using that as the church? So what's the application? Mindy and I were talking about this week. You know, At the end of a sermon, when you preach, what is it that you're trying to accomplish from, from what I've just said, for example? Well, let me tell you what my aim in preaching is not. My aim is not to preach a good message. I don't want to preach a bad message. But I don't, my aim is not just to preach a good message. My aim is not to entertain anyone so everyone will like me or more people will come back next Sunday. That's not my concern. My aim is not to be harsh. My aim is not to step on anyone's toes. My aim in preaching, number one, is to please the Lord, to find his approval, to be faithful to this book. Really, apart from this, I nor any preacher has anything else to say. Be faithful to this book, to please the Lord. The second in preaching is for there to be some kind of response. And so my hope this morning, after spending two weeks on this, is for God to do something in your life and my life as a result of what the Scripture says regarding sound doctrine and the importance of sound doctrine. So let me share with you a couple things in closing. This is the application. This is what I'm praying that God will do as a result of these messages in the life of our church. Number one, I hope that it will inspire us. That we'll be inspired by it. That we will have more of a, a desire to devote ourselves to God's word, to study. You see, to, to realize the value and the necessity of knowing God's word and being doctrinally sound is what will cause all of our relationships with Christ to mature. So why is it important that you and I spend time in the Word for us to get stronger in our faith? Why is that so important for us individually? Well, let me just give you some practical things. Number one, it'll make you a better husband. And it'll make you a better wife. Spending time alone with God in His Word where He begins to speak to you and strengthen your faith and convict you of sinful thoughts and sinful actions and, and you just grow in Christ, it will make you a better husband. It'll make you a better wife. Other things, it will make you more effective at teaching your own kids. Any parent who has raised their kids and they're now out of the home will be able to look back and say the things like this. I wish I had been more strict on this. I wish I had responded that way. Or I wish I hadn't done some of this. That's just normal. Be stronger in faith will help us to be better able to disciple our own kids. 
Third, inspiring us to spend time with God and his word. Third, it might lend itself, which I hope it does, to launching more Bible studies. Now, listen to me on this. I don't, I don't know where, we, where we've gone off track on this. Launching Bible studies. Not, in, not on Sunday mornings at church, which is a good thing that we have Bible studies and classes for all ages, but Bible studies at work. Bible studies in the office, Bible studies in the dorm room, Bible studies in the locker room, Bible studies in our homes, Bible studies in our neighborhoods. Why? For the purpose of sharing the word of God to reach lost people. That's our mandate. So why not? Why, what would prevent you from starting a Bible study at work, at school, in the dorm? What, what would hinder you from doing that? And I want to encourage you, don't just write this off, what I'm saying to you. God has empowered you, indwelled you with the Holy Spirit. He's given you his word. Most of us in this place know a lot of scripture. God has positioned you around lost people throughout the week where you spend most of your time? What would hinder Hillcrest Baptist Church from starting hundreds, hundreds of new Bible studies throughout the city of New Albany? What would stop that? What would, what would hinder that? What would happen if individual members of this church were going out starting Bible studies with confidence in the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and every elected official of this church, every teacher, every doctor, every HR person, every tradesman, every nurse, every office administrator, every business owner went out and started a Bible study. Oh, pastor, don't, don't get carried away. Now, I didn't come to church today to have to think about something like that. You're putting me on the spot. That's asking a lot. People might think I'm radical, and people think I'm a Jesus freak or something. Yeah, they might. What would happen to Hillcrest Baptist Church if we took the Great Commission, teaching people, getting them into the Word, because what happens? We know that if they get into the Word, what happens? They become aware of their sin. The Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin, drives them to despair where they need a Savior. That's going to happen through the Word. Let me say it. Do, do any of you have some loved ones in your life who are not following Christ, you're not sure if they're Christians, you're not sure if they're saved, or if they are saved, they're living in the world. Parents, grandparents, people here, do y'all have some family members like that or distant family members? And you have this thought, oh, if they would only get under the word of God, if they would only sit under good preaching, good proclamation, if they'd only find their, their way to a... a to a church, to a Bible study. Well, what if the Bible study went to them? And I, let me just practically just say, why don't you find one other person, maybe another Christian coworker in the workplace or somebody from this church and say, hey, let's partner up. Let's start a Bible study and just start it for six to eight weeks. See what, see what God might do through it. You don't have to make a lifetime. Just 
that's one of the things I'd like to encourage you to think about as a church. Starting Bible studies, getting the word out. Second application, we need more teachers here. Hillcrest Baptist Church needs more people to teach. And I pray that God will be speaking to you, challenging you to perhaps step up and say, Lord, I'll serve, use me, I'll teach. But also pray that as you do that, that uh, you know, that, that God would work throughout the church. A couple, couple of thoughts about this. Uh, every, every person who's teaching now should always be, have an antenna looking for potential teachers. So those, those of you who are teaching, who in your classroom might be able to do this and just always recruiting, always trying to develop people to improve skills for people to teach. And we as a staff, we're going to try to do more and more all the time to provide teacher training. Don't you think it would be a good thing for every adult in this church who teaches Sunday school, especially who teaching little kids and students, if they had a regular assistant who would fill in for them on occasion so they can stay connected to other adults in Sunday school? They need an assistant. They need somebody to help cover. And so I pray that some of you this morning would go to your Sunday school teacher, go to Tracy, come see the staff, somebody, and say, you know what, I feel like that's something that God would have me to do. What are, the, what are the qualifications for teaching biblically? Let me just mention a couple things real very quickly. You need to be saved. <laughs> the teacher needs to be born again to have a true relationship with Christ. Second, they need to be blameless and above reproach. They need to have a good testimony, which we'll get to. Third, they need to agree on the teaching standard, which is the Bible. Fourth, they need to be willing to study and prepare. And fifth, they need to have some relational, some communication skills where they can, God could work through them. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, those who lead the church, Paul very specifically says in 1 Timothy 3, need to be teachers. Those who spiritually, they need to be apt to teach. They need to be teachers in the church. And then finally, and I'll stop with this, we as a church, those who teach, resist the growing trend among churches to replace the Bible. Resist the urge, the temptation, the trend to substitute the Bible, to actually look for other ways to replace the Bible teaching from other books on more popular subjects. Let me say this, there are some great books with some great authors, Christian books, Christian authors. They're theologically excellent, and there are times and occasions when that's appropriate. But the norm needs to be the Bible. It needs to be the Bible, where God's people sit around together, and they open the Bible up together, and they read the text, and they talk about the text, and they reflect on the text together. The norm needs to be the Bible. And there is a felt need today for more and more churches to move away from the Bible, to study books. And that seems to be a trend. There was a previous church that I pastored, and we had a prayer room, and there were some well-intentioned members of the church who donated some popular books on prayer. Some of those books were bestsellers by popular authors, but they were not biblically nor theologically sound, and without apology were removed from the prayer room. And somebody needs to be monitoring those kinds of things. And by the way, 
for those of you who think, well, we want to teach it. You'll not find a more topical book than the Bible. I mean, any, any subject, any topic that you can think of, politics, you'll find some teaching in the Bible. Marriage, family, parenting, finances, just about any subject. You can, I don't know if you'll find anything on hunting. <laughs> but the Bible is topical. Stay with the scriptures. That's what I'm, I'm trying to say to you. We have a mission as a church, and our mission is not to be good church people. Amen? That's not our mission, to show up for church and to sit in a pew. That's not our mission. Rather, we huddle up like this as a church to go out as salt and light to make disciples. God reveals himself through his word. He speaks and convicts and draws to bring people to himself through the gospel. So Hillcrest, let's stay clear on doctrine, stay with the Bible, and let's get as many people as we can into a position to hear God speak through his word. Those two things. Let's stay with the Bible, and let's do everything that we can to get people under hearing the word, under the ministry of the word. Let me pray with you.